I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Twitter announced recently that it would stop all political advertising. Twitter's new policy declares, Twitter globally prohibits the promotion of political content. We've made this decision based on our belief that political message reach should be earned and not bought. Around the same time, Facebook announced that it will continue to run political ads. And a few weeks ago, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech about Facebook's free expression policy. To compare the political ads policy of Facebook and Twitter and to discuss free speech online more generally, I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on digital speech. Ellen Goodman is professor of law at Rutgers Law School and co-director and co-founder of the Rutgers Institute for Information Policy and Law. She blogs for the Institute's website and at medium.com. Professor Goodman is also senior fellow at the Digital Innovation and Democracy Institute at the German Marshall Fund, and she previously served as distinguished visiting scholar at the Federal Communications Commission. Ellen, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really happy to be here. And Eugene Volokh is Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA Law School. He is author of The First Amendment and Related Statutes, among many other works, and founder and co-author of The Volokh Conspiracy, a leading legal blog. Professor Volokh also just launched the project Free Speech Rules, a website featuring videos that explain the laws of free speech, and I encourage We the People listeners to check it out at freespeechrules.org. Eugene, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Always a great pleasure. All right, let's begin with the facts. I just read from the preamble to Twitter's new political speech policy, and in describing who is subject to the policy, Twitter goes on to say, we define political content as content that references a candidate political party, elected or appointed government official, election referendum, ballot measure, legislation, regulation, directive, or judicial outcomes. After that, there are some exceptions. Ellen, can you begin by describing in a little more detail what Twitter's political ads policy is, why Twitter adopted it, and why Facebook has made a different choice? So um, I think Mark Zuckerberg was first out of the gate saying that um, that Facebook would not apply its usual policies on disinformation to political ads, and that um, the reason was because, uh, he said, because they believed in free speech. And then Jack Dorsey from Twitter, um, in a kind of a trolling comment, responded to that by saying that was irresponsible um, because, of course, platforms make decisions all the time on what content to host, but specifically in this um, context, what content to promote and what content to monetize. And so that Twitter was going to come up with a policy about political ads. And I think the first iteration or the first announcement of Twitter's policy um, was that it would not take either political advertising or issue advertising. And, and we can talk about those terms because they have sort of a pedigree in communications law. But then I think when the, um, after, you know, fielding some criticism for that in the final policy that Twitter announced, um, they have distinguished between those two and they will take issue ads. But interestingly, um, they will not micro-target, and that's another thing we can talk about, not micro-target um, the, the direct, d- d- th- those ads um, to very small niche audiences. 
Eugene, what was your first reaction to the Twitter policy? Obviously, we can't speak as a matter of formal First Amendment law because the First Amendment doesn't bind Twitter. But broadly, do you agree with Twitter's decision to ban political ads and micro-targeting while allowing advocacy ads? And do you agree with its insistence that ads should reach audiences based on interest rather than money? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't have an answer for it, in part because I think it's an experiment. in a year or two, we'll see. Do uh, uh, does it look like the consequence of uh, uh, of that kind of policy is to make uh, political advertising even more expensive and require even more uh, um, fundraising, for example, for political candidates? I mean, the more expensive uh, you make uh, uh, political campaigns, the more uh, uh, the more concerns people have about campaign finance, for example. Uh, um, uh, or on the other hand, is it something which uh, helps Twitter avoid? Uh, a lot of controversies and maybe even makes the environment more pleasant for Twitter users. One of the advantages of having this be done by private entities, even very, very large and influential private entities, uh, is that we get to experiment. We get to see uh, what things are like uh, uh, under the new regime. Um, and uh, uh, it it may be that uh, ultimately, even just from a from a, uh, a bottom line perspective, Twitter will conclude, oh, you know, this is something that is losing us valuable advertising, although apparently uh, such advertising is a very modest source of income for uh, for Twitter, the political advertising. Conversely, maybe Facebook will say allowing this advertising causes so much controversy and so many complaints that we have to deal with that we're better off following the Twitter model. Perfectly, uh, uh, any of them is perfectly plausible. Any of these possible outcomes is perfectly plausible. And this is an experiment that will allow us to see what happens. Ellen, as Eugene says, Twitter gets little money from political advertising, less than $3 million out of a total revenue of $3 billion. By contrast, Facebook gets a far larger portion of its revenue from political ads. You've written critically about aspects of Twitter's policy, saying it doesn't go far enough in some aspects and it goes too far in others. Uh, could you share some more of your thoughts about whether or not Twitter's new decision not to run political ads is a good thing? I think um, Twitter should be commended for, you know, as Eugene says, for for Trump taking on this experiment. One thing we know for sure is that there are going to be unintended effects, and it's going to take a lot of heat for those effects. Um, I mean, some of them, one of them might be that, uh, uh, for example, as some people have pointed out, Exxon will be able to advertise for fossil fuels because that is not not an issue ad, and um, climate change activists will not be able to advertise for a carbon tax because that will be a specific legislative proposal. Um, And so, you know, undoubtedly, Twitter is going to take a lot of heat for this. I can say that um, two things that I think would improve this policy, and this is really in the spirit of what Eugene said was, you know, assessing this as an experiment. Um, in order to do that, we will need a lot of transparency. It's not clear how much transparency there's going to be about this. So, for example, what kinds of ads is Twitter not taking? How does it respond when it gets one of the complaints that it will surely get that um, you know, something it deemed political is not political or that something it let on because it, it, it not thinking it was political actually is political? How much transparency will we get into these decisions and what um, how much access will we get to the data? 
One other thing that I, I really like about Twitter is what Twitter did. And um, again, we need a lot more data about this. And I think this particular aspect of the policy could be expanded is what it did on micro-targeting. So I and other people have really been harping on this micro-targeting as really being the evil here in, in some of these um surveillance ad networks. Um, and so I would like to see more action taken on micro-targeting. Eugene, what are your thoughts about micro-targeting and about Twitter's idea that the reach of ads should depend on interest in them, not how much people pay for them? And what do you think about Twitter's efforts to distinguish between political ads, in other words, ads that include appeals for votes, solicitations for financial support, and advocacy for or against political issues, from paid advocacy ads, which they'll still permit? Uh, well, so I think that uh, uh, it's important to, re- to um, uh, stress that these are private institutions here. Uh, and uh, it's true, they're private institutions with a lot of power and a lot of influence over public debate. And um, there are plausible arguments for regulating them or trying to pressure them socially to allow more speech. But I do think that that's one of the things that uh, uh, makes it legitimate to uh, to have them experiment with these kinds of things. Uh, if the government were to tr- totally ban micro-targeting, uh, said, you know, if you want uh, if you want to advertise your political message, whether it's a candidate message or an issue message, you've got to do it. Uh, millions of people are not at all. I think that would be clearly unconstitutional. Among other things, can personal conversations are the are a form of micro targeting when when parties, for example, encourage their members to talk to each other or in, or bring in particular people who will go to a small group gathering and talk with an eye towards what that group thinks, uh, what that group is interested in, say go to a homeowners association and talk about one set of things and talk to, and then go to a uh, to a, uh, a church group and talk about another set of things, that's clearly fully protected speech. At the same time, if Twitter thinks that that's not a good use of its platform, if it doesn't want to allow its platform to be used for that because it thinks that that's ultimately worse for our democracy than better, I think at the very least, they ought to be given a chance to try this out and see what happens. And then again, in a year or two, we'll see uh, if uh, if uh, we have a lot of stories about people who can plausibly say, look, this loses us a good opportunity to convey them messages we need to convey to the particular groups we need to reach in a way that's likely to reach them effectively. Maybe that will lead uh, uh, lead Twitter to, ch- to change its mind, especially if there are specific uh, specific examples. But I do think this this too, the market targeting is also something that I don't think can be categorically condemned or categorically praised. It's the sort of thing where it makes sense that there would be some experimentation with. Uh, likewise, more generally about political advertising, uh, uh, the uh, the First Amendment fully protects political advertising. Uh, it, it recognizes as an important. Uh, uh, use of free speech or freedom of the press, actually, if you think about it. Freedom of the press historically has been what uh, uh, how um, uh, the framers and later generations referred to kind of mass communications. So that is that is clearly protected uh, against the government. But at the same time, it may make sense for Twitter to say, uh, look, we want for political purposes, our platform to be used for people expressing their views because they believe in them and not because they've been paid to or 
uh, getting views because somebody has has paid for that. Obviously, when it comes to commercial advertising, that's exactly what Twitter does: is it allows uh, uh, commercial enterprises to promote their products because uh, uh, because the enterprise is paying Twitter for that. But I mean, again, that's something that if you want to have Twitter, you have to have some funding source for it. If it's going to be free to everybody, then it needs to be uh, supported by advertising. So again, these are arguments that I would not accept from the government imposing regulations, but it makes sense to see to see uh, uh, how they work out. And we've seen Twitter policy and Facebook policy change over the years in the past in response to some of these experiments. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll see in the next several years how uh, how much of this survives. Uh, but I don't think we should view any of this as sort of set in stone. This is the way things are gonna be going forward indefinitely. Um, uh, and I think a lot depends on what the outcomes uh, uh, look like they are after after this is tried. Ellen, in a piece you wrote with Karen Kornbluth in the LA Times called The More Outrageous the Lie, the Better It Is for Facebook's Bottom Line, you said that Twitter's definition of political ads might create problems. You wrote, in the weeks since Twitter banned political ads, we've seen that the slack definition and uneven enforcement may be as bad as Facebook's do-nothing approach. If Twitter continues to define political to include ads on controversial topics versus electioneering ads that advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate in a political campaign, the resulting morass will be predictable. Critics predict ads promoting fossil fuel will not be considered issue ads, but those promoting responsible climate change will be. That's the end of your provocative statement. Uh, Tell us more about that criticism and how you think the definition of political ads could be improved. Well, so I think um, since we wrote that, and I'm not taking credit for this, but I think Twitter did exactly what we suggested it should do, which is it tightened up the definition. So so what it's done um, since uh, that was in response to its its sort of first indication before it actually released um, its final rules, so to speak. Uh, so we did tighten up the definition of political ads. It tried to address with that, that distinction between political ads and issue ads. And I think what you see Twitter doing is trying to align itself um, with a co- coherent category, not unlike the kind of definition that we see in IRS rules or in lobbying rules about um, what is political or, adv- or political advocacy as opposed to just discussion of um, of issues. So, you know, I give it credit for doing that. I don't think it will, it, it won't um, uh, extinguish some of the liminal um, uh, issues and questions, and so um, we will see them. But if I can just um, say something about the First Amendment, I mean, I think Eugene is absolutely right about um, the s- sort of doctrine here, and um, uh, we're only having this conversation, and we can only talk about sort of banning or tinkering with micro-targeting in the way I'd like to see, because this is a platform. Um, but I do think there are bigger sort of questions about, you know, where First Amendment doctrine um, should be headed and sort of what are some of the underlying philosophical um, questions that we're going to need to contend with. And and I'll just throw one out there is that, you know, do we need to rethink some First Amendment doctrine as we move into um, a, a time when really government censorship is is less the bogeyman here and the the ill to be combated um, than kind of you know d- d- uh, information flooding um, disorientation distraction um, d- does that change the First Amendment calculus in some ways? So let's talk squarely about the First Amendment, Eugene. 
If Twitter were the government, could it ban political ads and define them the way that it has? Tell us about the cases that would forbid it from doing so and also the principles that underlie those cases. And then tell us whether you think the fact that Twitter is a private company means that Twitter shouldn't have to abide by those principles. So curiously, if you look at uh, uh, a First Amendment doctrine with regard to political advertising, a lot depends on whether it's the government acting as sovereign, setting up rules for what everybody uh, in the country or in a state has to do, or the government acting as property owner, controlling what happens in its own property. If the government wanted to ban political advertising, just make it a crime to put out political ads on a website or on a billboard or whatever else, clearly unconstitutional uh, because this, because political advertising is speech and speech paid for uh, with money is fully protected. The Supreme Court made that clear in Buckley v. Vallejo, the campaign finance case, but that was well established by then. New York Times v. Sullivan, the famous libel case, involved a political ad. It involved not an ad about a candidate, but an ad about an issue. Uh, it wasn't the New York Times that ran the story uh, uh, about uh, uh, alleged misconduct that may or may not have been done by Mr. Sullivan, uh, by Commissioner Sullivan. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, it was uh, advertisers, people who bought an ad in the uh, New York Times for that very purpose. And that's long been understood as constitutionally uh, protected. I've seen some cases from the early 1800s involving advertising in, in newspapers that the that the courts recognized were potentially protected by liberty of the press, although subject to the constraints imposed by libel law. Um, on the other hand, if the government, say, runs a tr transportation system, there was a case uh, involving a, a bus system in Shaker Heights, uh, Ohio. Uh, the case was Lehman v. City of Shaker Heights in 1974. Um, uh, the government could say we'll only run commercial ads and not political ads. There, the concern was just they were afraid that political ads would create too much controversy, maybe would alienate some riders, uh, uh, just in general would cause too much hassle for uh, for the, the municipal bus system. And the Supreme Court, to be sure, by a five to four vote, but still the Supreme Court said that is constitutionally permissible because that's the government controlling its own property. So it turns out that the rules for the government uh, are kind of complicated. They depend on the role the government is taking. But when we're talking about government uh, uh, constraining things on its own property, um, it has a good deal of authority. Now, one difference between government property and private property, and by the way, when I'm talking about government property, I'm talking like about things like the bus systems. Uh, when it comes to streets and parks and other kind of government property like that, there the government can constrain speech, but on things like bus systems, it can. Um, uh, so uh, when we're talking about private property, private property owners can discriminate even based on viewpoint. I, I would be um, I would be more critical if Twitter and Facebook tried to suppress particular kinds of viewpoints, and to the extent that they do try to suppress them, I am kind of critical of that. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, the government, even on its own property, generally speaking, can't discriminate based on viewpoint when it comes to regulating private private party speech. Thanks for that helpful summary of the case law and for teaching us that the government as speaker has different obligations based on where it's speaking and the nature of its property. Ellen, tell us more about your very interesting piece in The Guardian in October called How Facebook Shot Themselves in the Foot in Their Elizabeth Warren Spat. You describe Mark Zuckerberg's argument with Senator Elizabeth Warren over the company's choice to run Donald Trump's advertising campaign containing lies about Joe Biden. 
Senator Warren headlined her own Facebook ad with a claim that Zuckerberg had endorsed President Trump. Facebook then tweeted a response to Senator Warren by name, and it compared itself to a local broadcaster who's required by law to carry political ads. And as you say, Facebook in the process made your argument for you in the sense that you floated the idea that digital platforms are gatekeepers, which means that their self-regulation is inadequate. Tell us more about that Facebook spat and why you think it proved your arguments that more regulation is necessary. Um, right. So so Mark Zuckerberg does not want to be regulated like a broadcaster. There's a question about whether Facebook could be regulated as a broadcaster, and that is a First Amendment question, and that's not at all clear. Um, but the, the reason why we found what he said to be ironic is because his point was that we are going to behave just like broadcasters who are required to, ta- to provide reasonable access to, le- to legally qualified federal candidates. And when they do provide that access for those candidates' ads, they are not allowed uh, to censor those ads, and they are given immunity for running them. So that's the law that applies to broadcasters. And our point was really, um, I mean, there, there is a sort of practical point that there's a gap between how broadcasters actually behave and what that that provision of the law says, which is part of the Communications Act. And it's it's an important practical difference. And then I'll get to the sort of the overarching um, regulatory point. The practical difference, and, and this really, it's important because it goes to the culture of these different platforms. It goes to their scale. It goes to their histories. And it goes to sort of the connective tissue between how they behave with respect to political political advertising decisions, and then how they, um, what their other incentives are as regulated entities. So broadcasters, in fact, do negotiate with candidates about what their ads are going to say. And when they are presented with an ad that broadcasters think flat out lie, broadcasters will go to those ad agencies and they'll say, come on, we're, we don't want to run this. And they will sort of um, informally negotiate a resolution to that. You won't see that in the, in the text of the act, but that's actually what happens. Um, and that has to do with cultural reasons, with other you know reasons about their relationship with the FCC, etc. So that's the practical point. The larger regulatory point is that, um, uh, and this is something Lee Bollinger has written a lot about, is that you have to understand um, the whole fabric and, and sort of intricacies of broadcast regulation as living in a family of a sort of First Amendment settlement where we have different um, platforms that have different kind of First Amendment standards, um, broadcast being the most heavily regulated, print um, completely unregulated, and that's a good thing for the ecosystem, for there to be these this sort of diversity of um, uh, First Amendment standards and responsibilities. Um, and what Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook lives outside of that ecosystem in a completely um, unregulated, you might say it's like print and that it's completely unregulated, but it behaves, it's, a, it's technical affordances um, give it a very different effect in the world than print has. And that comes back to micro-targeting. So because we, we might say, well, 
print, and you can take the um, the New York Times versus Sullivan ad as an example. Um, whatever that says is going to be visible to everybody, and so in a sense, um, there's a way in which even if it can't be, is not subject to libel and not subject to other kinds of um, legal discipline, it's subject to the public eye and to sort of public discourse to the extent that it lies um, or is otherwise injurious. Whereas micro-targeted ads are hidden and opaque because they go to very small slivers of the audience and and sort of the, the, the public eye is not on them. And so in that way, Facebook operates in a unique in a unique way, or the, the platforms all operate that way, and in a very new way. And so it's in that respect that we sort of said, you know, come on, you're not like a broadcaster, not in any way, and you don't want to be regulated like one. So it's a bad analogy for you. Eugene, what's your response to Ellen's provocative suggestion that the platforms might be regulated, including the regulation of micro-targeting, to promote the truth? In one of the videos for your Free Speech Rules project, you ask the question, can the law punish deliberate lies about public matters? You say it depends, and then you give six rules of fake news. And I'll share them because they're really helpful. First, false statements that damage reputations can generally be punished. Second, deliberate lies aimed at getting money can be punished as fraud. Third, deliberate lies as well as honest mistakes in commercial advertising can be punished. Fourth, lies about the government can't be punished. Fifth, lies about big picture topics generally can't be punished either. And sixth, lies about specific topics are more complicated. So I'd like to ask you about that sixth, more complicated category. Ellen suggests that micro-targeting can make lies about specific topics harder to detect. What do you think about the broad proposition of regulating the platforms in order to promote the truth? And how, in practice, could the platforms distinguish between truth and falsehood? Uh, right. So uh, there are two kinds of regulations that I, are um, uh, implied by this question. It's always hard to talk about regulations in the abstract. We need to have a sense of what exactly is being proposed. But as I understand it, there are two possibilities. One is let's ban micro-targeting. Regardless of its content, even if the statement is completely true, let's ban micro-targeting because in general, it's a it's a way that might spread lies, or even if it isn't outright lies, may spread uh, information that's misleading. We'd be better off if there was no micro-targeting. Um, that's a classic example of a, of a um, uh, restriction that uh, is facially viewpoint neutral, doesn't require sort of discretionary judgments about what's true and what's false, uh, but is probably unconstitutional because it's a prophylactic rule. Uh, uh, the argument is in order to, uh, to uh, uh, prevent the relatively small amount uh, of material out there that it's an outright lie and perhaps the larger amount that's misleading, we're going to ban this entire kind of medium of communication. That, I think, would be unconstitutional if the government were to do it. Although, again, it, it may make sense for private, private entities to try to experiment with that. Um, a second alternative might be, well, no, we're not really after micro-targeting generally, but we will require platforms, or at least we'll encourage platforms to um, uh, uh, prohibit false statements in micro-targeting. And there, I think if it were a requirement, I think it would raise some pretty serious problem, uh, serious, uh, uh, yeah, it, it would, if it were a requirement, I, I think uh, uh, it uh, would likely be unconstitutional because it would put these platforms in a position where often on very short notice, without a public trial, without uh, the kind of thing that usually happens when you've got a, a libel lawsuit being brought, they have to decide what's true and what's false. 
And the problem is we shouldn't always trust them or the government to decide what's true and what's false. Uh, we have worked out systems for deciding that in some situations, such again, uh, such as, uh, again, um, uh, libel lawsuits, but those take place in court, those take place with the rules of evidence, those take place over time, those take place in public. I don't think we should want to have a system uh, where platforms routinely decide, oh, we're going to ban this ad because it's false. Among other things, because platforms are run by people. And people have prejudices, people have political biases. Uh, and there will be constant questions, and I think quite plausible questions, about whether uh, the platform's decision to ban this ad or, uh, or that ad may actually stem from disagreement with the ideology and not a fair-minded application of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, rules about uh, literal truth or falsehood. Ellen, what's your response to Eugene's argument that it's hard to distinguish between truth and falsehood and that it would be hard for the platforms to do that because their decisions might be infected by bias? And for that reason, a requirement that they distinguish between truth and falsehood might be unconstitutional. Completely agree. Um, I cr completely agree with that. And I also don't think banning micro-targeting is either unconstitutional or desirable. So let me give you three kinds of regulatory interventions um, that I think we could think about. Um, so the first one is transparency. So transparency obligations are generally constitutional um, and, uh, and, and also, you, you know, well, they're generally constitutional. Um, the kind of transparency requirements I'd like to see, and I'd love to see them start as voluntary. Um, and in fact, the platforms are trying to be more transparent, but they haven't gone far enough. So um, with respect to micro-targeting, it would be good to know how these ads were being micro-targeted. And so, you know, under Facebook, you can, you can uh, there's a general disclosures about um, the grossest categories of sort of demographics and geography about where ads um, were sent. Uh, but there's very little information on things like lookalike audiences and custom, custom audiences. And this is where advertisers are really able to zero in on, you know, women who are 25 who buy a certain kinds of shoe and swim three times a week. Um, so more transparency. Second of all, I think, um, and this, uh, Eugene and I may not agree on the constitutionality of regulating um, data collection under the First Amendment, but all of this micro-targeting is only possible because of the harvesting of personal data and then um, the exploitation of that data in order to target ads. So I think that would be um, a, a, an indirect and more targeted way um, of, of dealing with some of the surveillance excesses of these platforms, and it would affect micro-targeting, although that might not be the, um, uh, the, the primary purpose of it. They would be framed as privacy regulations, I think. And then the third basket are, these are sort of structural telecom style um, regulations, which generally do not implicate um, the First Amendment. Uh, things like interoperability and portability, they're, they're more sort of um, descend from concerns about competition than concerns about speech. Um, but what they would allow you to do is, first of all, they would make it easier for there to be competing platforms. And I should say that having competition among platforms doesn't necessarily get you to less disinformation or to, um, doesn't, you know, may not solve these problems at all. And so this is more in the spirit of experimentation. But if we had different kinds of platforms, and the only way to have that is so that you can 
um, take your data with you to a new platform or to use modules on top of existing dominant platforms. Um, if, if, if we had different kinds of platforms, we could see how different business models, maybe ones that weren't so surveillant, that didn't rely so much on micro-targeting, um, that weren't driven by engagement, that didn't promote some of the speech pathologies that we have now, um, uh, we, we could see if those could take root. And so those would be three kinds of um, regulation that I think um, would not trigger so much as many First Amendment problems as banning micro-targeting or certainly policing for the truth. Although I do one little um, addendum I, I do want to make to that is don't think the government can or should require it, but of course platforms are constantly making um, truth decisions because they all have policies that basically forbid lying. It's only with respect to political ads that Facebook was saying it would not do that. Eugene, Ellen just identified three regulations she says might raise fewer First Amendment concerns about micro-targeting. First, transparency. Second, data collection. And third, the interoperability of the platforms. What's your response? Uh, yeah, uh, I think those certainly would raise uh, fewer First Amendment problems. I agree that inter interoperability requirements wouldn't pay, pose a First Amendment problem. I think transparency uh, would pose minimal First Amendment problems, though I can imagine an argument that certain kinds of things uh, people are entitled to keep confidential. I just don't think that's that likely when they are trying to speak to a public, even not the whole public. Um, I don't think we'd want to have transparency in individual emails that people send. Uh, that is to say, we don't want to have mandated disclosure. Here are all the emails that the campaign has ever sent to anybody. Uh, but I do think that when they're talking to largest groups, uh, then requirements that uh, uh, that Facebook, uh, uh, let's say, uh, report uh, uh, or have an, a database of all of these things uh, out there so that others can monitor it, I think that would be permissible. I do think that data gathering uh, requirements might pose some First Amendment problems, but at the very least, fewer problems. So I think these are all uh, these are all plausible alternatives. Um, uh, I think they're better than either banning uh, uh, micro-targeting or uh, uh, requiring or pressuring uh, Facebook into making uh, truth falsehood uh, decisions and these kinds of things. I think it's true they may make those decisions as to some things in some situations, but when it comes to having those decisions be made about political uh, advocacy, that's both the kind of situation where um, the stakes are higher that uh, Facebook getting it wrong uh, can be uh, potentially troublesome uh, or could be especially troublesome. Uh, but also on top of that, uh, the risk of error is particularly infected by the human tendency to bias, uh, to see the, the best in one's friends and the worst in one's enemies. Um, uh, I will say that these that uh, um, if you step back from the First Amendment uh, 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 issues and look at kind of the politics uh, of this and uh, the likely lobbying that the platforms are going to engage in with regard to them. My sense is while the platforms would not be wild about uh, uh, various kinds of uh, speech regulations, they might make their peace with them because that doesn't that won't sharply interfere with their bottom line. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, if it comes to the interoperability requirement, that may face a huge amount of pressure because that will probably interfere with their bottom line. It'll make it a lot easier for people to come up to create competitors that uh, uh, um, that will uh, siphon away uh, some customers or some, uh, some users. Now, uh, it may still be really good for society. It may be good for the country to have these kinds of interoper interoperability requirements. It's a plausible argument either Way, but I do think that that's something my guess is the platforms will fight tooth and nail. Ellen, how does Facebook treat deliberate lies in its advertising? 
So, for example, if Senator Warren had tweeted not that Zuckerberg effectively endorsed President Trump by profiting from his lies, but instead posted ads saying, Zuckerberg has endorsed Trump, would Facebook run that? And more broadly, how does Facebook enforce whatever policies it has for distinguishing true from false political ads? So I think, um, I mean, this was the question um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez asked uh, Zuckerberg right at the hearing. Um, she specifically asked, uh, you know, could, could there, um, uh, could a campaign ad uh, lie? Um, and I think he said, after hemming and hawing, said, I think it could. Um, I'm not sure. I think if Elizabeth Warren um, made any kind of uh, statement that would be considered, Facebook would, would be would consider that a political um, uh, political ad because she's a candidate, and so would not um, would, would not do anything. Would um, both allow it? And by the way, you know, so we are. None of these platforms are going to censor. Um, statements of political candidates. It's only about whether uh, how they're going to treat paid promotions and amplification. Um, so, uh, so that's the decision that um, uh, that Zuckerberg would make on that. I'm sorry if I lost track of <laughs> what else you were asking. No, that's a helpful response, and that's interesting that Representative Ocasio Cortez asked that question. Eugene, do you have any other sense of how, if at all, Facebook would regulate a deliberate lie in its advertising? And how does it track on to that really helpful list you gave us earlier about how generally deliberate lies in commercial advertising can be punished and lies about the government can't be punished while lies about the big picture can't be punished either? Does Facebook apply any version of that in its ad policy or not? You know, I don't know the ad policies uh, well enough to speak to that. But let me just step back a bit and talk about the what, what the government may do. Uh, the government does indeed ban false and even misleading statements in commercial advertising, which is to say advertising for ordinary products and services. And one reason, in fact, that courts have been more open to that is the sense that there's not as much at stake, that if the government makes decisions about whether some ad about food or about gasoline or about whatever else is accurate or inaccurate, there's not that much danger that that's going to uh, involve uh, uh, government officials uh, 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 trying to or essentially suppressing one side of a really important political debate. The sense is that com- debates about commercial products are less significant and therefore we are less worried about government uh, power there. Now when it comes to false statements about people, about particular individuals, libel law does regulate them. And even when it comes to false statements about political officials, if something is a deliberate lie, it could lead to libel liability. But again, it would do that after a trial, after a public trial, uh, in which, uh, while on the one hand is extremely expensive and, and burdensome as a result, at least there's more likelihood that there's going to be an impartial decision being made. Uh, so I think to the extent that Facebook is trying to to avoid making these kinds of decisions when it comes to these sort of political ads that are most likely to be controversial, most likely uh, that that any judgment about them is going to be infected by uh, by political bias on the part of the decision maker, I think that's a sensible position for them to take. I don't think it's the only plausible position, but I think it's a sensible position. And one way of thinking about it is, uh, there's a spectrum, right, of falsehoods. There are the kinds of things where, look, if, there's really no doubt that if we sit down and we figure or, or we we look at it, it's indubitably this particular statement is false and there's solid evidence it's deliberately false. And one question might be, well, what's the harm in either the government 
or in uh, uh, Facebook uh, saying, well, we're not going to allow this to be passed, uh, passed along. Well, the difficulty is there are a lot of other statements where some people say obviously a lie. Other people say, well, no, it's actually true or it's actually a matter of opinion. Uh, or, uh, look, this is obviously a joke. You're calling it a lie. That's just because you're deliberately failing to see the joke and the public at large will see the joke. So um, so the, the real question is how much you trust either the government or Facebook to deal with things along this whole spectrum. Uh, um, and uh, I think there's a lot to be said for leaving that to uh, to, to public debate and public criticism. And I do agree that requiring that these ads be archived in some place and accessible can facilitate that public debate and public criticism. So there is a lot to be said for those kinds of disclosure requirements. Ellen, I'm looking now at Facebook's false news policy, where they say that there's a fine line between false news and satire. And for that reason, they don't remove false news from Facebook, but instead significantly reduce its distribution by showing it lower in the news feed. And then if you read further about what they're doing to reduce the distribution of false news, you see that they say they remove accounts and content that violate their community standards or ad policies. And the ad policies include the following provision about misinformation, which says that Facebook prohibits ads that include claims debunked by third-party fact-checkers or, in certain circumstances, claims debunked by organizations with particular expertise. Advertisers that repeatedly post information deemed to be false may have restrictions placed on their ability to advertise on Facebook. What's your reaction to that? The fact that none of the three of us knew about the policy suggests how buried it is, but does it make sense as a false news policy to remove claims debunked by third-party fact-checkers or organizations with particular expertise? Is that precise enough, and is it even enforceable? No, no. I mean, I think we did know about it. That's the policy that applies to non-political advertising. Right. So false claims in ads that have been fact checked and proven to be false. That's how they know they're false. I mean, what they're saying is that we rely on third party fact checkers to tell us what's false. And also um, it comes up through a flagging um, system where consumers can flag things and then they will get it fact checked. And but that doesn't apply to political ads where they're they're not going to run that through um that fact-checking, um, that, that's what they've exempted. But I want to come back to, um, you know, I think just to, to come back to sort of our First Amendment touchstones, um, you know, I think what Eugene said about commercial speech, um, uh, of, of course, is right that we have a different standard for commercial speech than we do for political speech for good reason. But in addition, so he talked about it's considered lower value speech. Um, a couple of other things about commercial speech is that it's considered um, especially robust so that there won't be the sort of chilling effect. If we get it wrong and we say something's false when it's not false and, and um, th th there are um, it can be restricted under FTC, false advertising rules, um, it's not just that it's low value, but it's that the speaker the commercial speakers will um, uh, will be able to work with that um, sort of false positive um, because they're strong enough. And then I think there's a third um, value there, which is that the commercial advertisers are in a position to know what they're saying is false because they have the wherewithal and usually they're advertising their own products. And I think it's interesting to think about how those sort of desiderata, you know, hold up in this world of um, not just commercial speech, but but all speech. And to think about, you know, especially we're at the 100. I don't have to. I don't have to tell you, Jeff, that we're at the 100 year anniversary of the um, 
Abrams' um, dissent, Justice Holmes, Justice Brandeis, on the the explication of the marketplace of ideas, and you know, to what extent are those um, that that sort of view of reality um, uh, that gave that gave a right rise to the beautiful idea of a marketplace of ideas um, and a sense that we needed just an injection of a lot more ideas into the marketplace in order to um, arrive at truth. Um, you know, how does that hold up today? Um, who, wh- what is the robust, the most robust speech on um, on these platforms? Where does some speech, you know, need help or amplification that doesn't get it? Um, who is in a best position to know? Facebook and the policy that you read is saying third-party fact-checkers are in the best position um, to know what's true. And I, I don't I don't think that's wrong at all. And I credit them for um, relying on third-party fact-checkers. But how does the ecosystem actually work? So Facebook, you know, sort of notoriously has not funded these third-party fact-checkers. It relies on them, um, but it doesn't fund them. And and many of them have stopped doing this work because um, it's too expensive for them. And so if we want, you know, a really robust marketplace, what affirmative steps do we think should be taken should be taken, and what is the responsibility for these platforms um, to take them? So I would almost propose this as a fourth basket. It's not really regulation, but we ought to be thinking also about subsidies, subsidies for sort of good speech to, you know, make um, truth more robust, um, to, you know, sort of um, support uh, the audience's ability to sift truth from falsity themselves. Thank you so much for reminding us of the 100th anniversary of the Abrams Descent, and happy birthday, Abrams Descent. Uh, I'll just uh, recommend to We the People listeners a superb book on the Abrams Descent, Thomas Healy's The Great Descent, and I will have the pleasure now of reading a few of the immortal sentences from Justices Holmes' Descent in Abrams 100 years ago. So here's Holmes in Abrams. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and the truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. Eugene, those are such inspiring words. Ellen suggests that at the moment, the marketplace of ideas may not be fully functioning and that subsidies for good speech may give it a fair fight and allow it to fulfill Holmes's hopes. What's your response on the 100th anniversary of Abrams? Well, so remember, uh, Holmes says the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. He doesn't say it's the it's a perfect test of truth. It's just as compared to what? And what he's comparing it to is the government saying, oh, we figured out the truth. The truth is this. The rest is falsehood. We're going to ban the falsehood. We're going to allow only the truth. That, he says, is a bad system. It's a worse system than the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas is not going to always produce the truth, uh, but it's more likely to reach that. And one way of thinking about it is why did he say that in 1919? Well, if you look back over the preceding hundred years, Time had upset many fighting faiths. 
there were kind of routinely accepted views about a vast range of things, about uh, religion, about politics. Uh, uh, through, I mean, if you go 200 years before, it was broadly accepted that, of course, democracy isn't going to work and monarchy or aristocracy is the right way uh, of doing things. And then it took the marketplace of ideas to, uh, to, to dis dislodge that view. Um, uh, likewise, we look at what's happened in the previous uh, in in the following hundred years. Uh, how much has changed in our views about race, for example, about sex, about sexual orientation, about science, about again religion, politics, all of those things. Uh, and uh, uh, we see that if we if the government were allowed to say in 1919, here is the truth about race, sex, and sexual orientation, and anything else is going to be criminally punished to, to say that, the result would be would be uh, stagnation. The result would be less effective than the marketplace of ideas, flawed as it is. Likewise, looking forward 100 years from now, why should we have any confidence that our views, even again about race, sex, sexual orientation, whatever else, uh, are going to uh, to prove correct? Why should we assume that uh, the things that we have come to believe are necessarily right, as opposed to either wrong in big ways or at least wrong in significant enough ways? I mean, I believe in racial equality. I believe in sexual equality. I believe uh, uh, that uh, homosexual conduct and heterosexual conduct, in my view, are morally equivalent. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe all of us uh, who believe those things are wrong, at least in a certain degree. And it's only by allowing debate that we can actually try to figure this out imperfectly as debate functions. This having been said, I do agree that there is room for subsidies. Look, I'm subsidized by the taxpayers and the students at the University of California. Uh, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, the system of, of university, of how universities operate is a form of subsidy aimed at promoting the market marketplace of ideas, uh, tax exemptions for nonprofits uh, uh, and for donations to nonprofits are a form uh, of subsidy as well. And maybe there's reason to have more subsidy. Uh, but uh, uh, and that is, I think he would have uh, Holmes would have accepted uh, that, that that is part of the market. But it's just that the marketplace is better than government regulation is what he was saying. Ellen, what's your response? And what does that say about Facebook's decision, for example, to significantly reduce the distribution of false news by showing it lower in the news feed, as well as its decision to keep open the possibility of regulating political ads. Thank you for helping me understand the difference between the commercial and political ads policies. So then I went and looked at the political ads policies, and they do have this proviso, where appropriate, Facebook may restrict issue electoral or political ads. So in the end, Facebook is leaving the discretion in its own hands, even for the political ads. And Eugene is saying that the decision about what's false and isn't, uh, as uh, per Justice Holmes, is best made in the marketplace itself, as imperfect as that is, given the difficulty of having one authority decide on the test of truth. Are you confident in trusting that power to Facebook and Twitter? So if, we're, if the choice is marketplace versus government, yes, marketplace. But now let's look at what, how the marketplace is structured. And I think Facebook's um, downranking of, of certain kinds of content, and it, it, it's doing this more and more. And I think that there was a Wall Street Journal article, of, uh, I think Friday, showing how Google um, 
down ranks or, you know, has a human in the loop when it presents um, search results. So there, there, which is to say that these companies are structuring the marketplace. Um, You know, of course, Brandeis, you know, was also writing a lot at the same time about the curse of bigness and um, that, which is an acknowledgement that, that um, marketplaces are structured and that there is a uh, connection between the way marketplaces are structured and political power and um, public and democratic discourse. And so we want a marketplace that is designed in order to, um, to, to have us contest for visions of the truth so that we um, absolutely, as Eugene said, so that our, um, our normative views can evolve over time. And I question whether or not we have um, a, a marketplace right now that's um, conducive to the best sort of rough and tumble. And I'll just give you, you know, sort of one um, one way that that subsidies might work. And so, you know, not long um, after that decision in Abrams, well, you know, over the course of the next couple of decades, um, you know, there came to be subsidies in the form of um, spectrum that was set aside for non-commercial stations. And then we had PBS and we had um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting and as Eugene says, we have public universities, we have public education, we have um, NEH and NEA, and sort of there was, um, we have the, uh, you know, the postal service, we have various sort of forms of intervention that are designed um, to supply people with credible information. And, you know, I think to be a little optimistic, we're right now in this period of transition where we're getting used to these big platforms and um, we don't know how to deal with global speech platforms. We don't know how to deal with the role of foreign governments or foreign actors in our speech environments and the melding of foreign and domestic and um, sort of concerted action and individual action, truth and and falsity. And we're in sort of a, a state of turmoil. And I think the optimistic view is that we will sort this out. Um, we will be able to sort truth from fact. The marketplace will work, but there are some assists um, in in terms of accelerating that development and also making sure that um, the marketplace relies on this sort of cognitive autonomy and our ability, the human mind's ability um, to think for itself. And with the velocity and volume of uh, data and information that's coming at us, we may not be prepared to exercise that faculty and we may need um, some some help and that help can come in sort of various forms of structuring these platforms. Thank you very much for that Brandeisian response. And Eugene, I'll ask for your thoughts and then we'll have closing arguments. Ellen says eloquently that Brandeis, writing around the same times as Holmes, warned of the curse of bigness and he had a different view of the purpose of free speech. In his immortal concurrence in Whitney versus California, he said... Believing in the power of reason as applied through public discussion, the framers eschewed silence. And he emphasized that those who made our independence believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. Ellen is saying that if we're concerned about promoting reason through deliberation, reason may need some help in an age of unreason. And therefore, certain subsidies could promote reason and truth rather than thwarting it. What's your response? And can you be specific about the kind of subsidies that you think might, in fact, promote reason if there are any? Well, that's too general a question. I think I certainly think there's nothing unconstitutional about subsidies. I think some of those subsidies are a good idea. Uh, 
there's always, you know, always people want more subsidies, but the problem, of course, is subsidies come come out of some uh, some uh, uh, account in the budget uh, from the government budget, sometimes private entities budgets, and there's there are all these trade offs. But I'm not going to speak out either in generally against subsidies or identifying particular subsidies that are necessarily uh, the right approach. Just to give you one example, some people say that one of the things that we get the least information on these days is about local and state government. That at least about national government and national issues, there are lots of people talking about and newspapers are writing about them. But on local and state government, there's very little. Maybe there should be some way of helping promote that by, for example, providing some sort of subsidies to local newspapers and such, or having some sort of uh, um, uh, either businesses or uh, or wealthy individuals uh, uh, set up funds to, to help promote that, as in fact many have done through foundations. So these are all, I think, uh, uh, plausible, uh, plausible positions. Let me also mention one other thing that came up, uh, um, uh, which has to do with uh, uh, the Facebook news feed and Google search results. Now, we've been so far talking mostly about Facebook and, uh, and say, Twitter as platforms, but they also provide information to people that's aggregated from other parties, but is basically, you might think of them as the recommendation function. These are things that we think you're interested in uh, uh, in seeing. So in Google, for example, if I go to Google News, I'm asking Google, recommend the most interesting or most valuable news stories. If I'm doing a search in Google for particular keywords, I search, uh, ask it a question, I wanted to recommend sites that, uh, uh, that, that are good on that point. Um, there, I think it's inevitable that they have to have some judgment, some power to exercise judgment about what's right and what's wrong, because presumably most of their uh, most of their viewers would like uh, the right answer to a question and uh, uh, accurate news rather than false news. When I go to Google News, I'm looking for something that's worth reading, not something that's bunk. Uh, and uh, it would be a great disservice to, to its users uh, for uh, for Google uh, or Facebook to then recommend things without checking, without any without any um, uh, any shouldn't say without checking, but recommend things even in situations where there's reason to believe that those uh, things are false. So I think for the recommendation function, some sort of content judgment is inevitable, as opposed to just hosting a page or even hosting ads that are that are submitted that people realize are not part of their uh, the the Facebook's or Google's recommendation function. There, I think uh, uh, we probably want to have rather uh, more viewpoint neutrality on the platform's part. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this really rich and illuminating discussion. And the first one, Ellen, is to you. Please sum up for our We the People listeners what you think of Twitter's decision to ban political ads. So the platforms are never neutral in um, how they present or promote uh, information. They have algorithms that favor certain kinds of information. They structure um, uh, their, their micro-targeting in order to um, make certain kinds of uh, content uh, travel directly to people who are most susceptible to them. To, to that content. Um, so there is no neutrality. Um, there is also, you know, huge amounts of concentration and power in these platforms. 
Um, and to a large extent, it is uh, power that is gained through surveillance and um, data collection. So given all of this, I think Twitter has taken a responsible step to recognize this and not just to use the bromides of free speech and the fiction of neutrality to avoid responsibility um, for some of the harm that uh, micro-targeted political ads and other kinds of um, uh, 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 amplified content cause. So I appreciate that it's done that. Um, we'll have to see how it rolls out. We know that there will be problems, and I think then we can judge Twitter for how it responds um, to those problems, how agilely and how transparently it responds. Um, and I think the last thing I would say, which we haven't had time to discuss, but which is sort of really at the root of all of this, is that we can think of this that the problem of platform speech as being a signal to noise ratio. And mostly we've been talking about the noise and what these platforms can do about it. But it's also about the signal. And the signal really is high quality information. And generally, or often, that's high cost information. As Eugene said, it's local journalism. And you know, over the past decade, um, the platforms have almost entirely displaced um, local or uh, all of journalism in terms of the advertising revenue and decimated um, that business, not intentionally, but just by virtue of the business model. And so we're, we're really in, in signal deficit as much as we're in, in noise surplus. Um, and so I think the solutions to these problems involve not only what the platforms do to sort of depress um, noisiness or disinformation, but what we as a society and the platforms do to boost high quality information. And Eugene, the last word is to you. Please sum up for our We the People listeners what you think of Twitter's decision to ban political ads. We don't know what the right way of structuring uh, uh, the media uh, uh, is. Um, a lot of what has happened is in some measure accident, which companies with which business models manage to present something that's useful and survive. Uh, it's not entirely an accident. Uh, they had to be useful to people. Uh, but uh, uh, but there it could be that a, uh, a, a no political advertising model is ultimately better uh, under various definitions of better. It could be that uh, uh, that it's worse. Uh, we don't know that for sure. I'm pretty confident that the government shouldn't be imposing a one-size-fits-all solution on everybody uh, and banning this kind of stuff. I don't think the First Amendment would allow that. But I think that if Twitter thinks that its advertising engine should not be used for political uh, political advertising, probably for a combination of reasons, partly because they don't want to have the bad publicity or they don't want to have the controversy of that. And perhaps because they also think that it's worse for society if people have these kinds of ads, uh, then it seems to me uh, that that's something that's worthwhile for them to try. And again, we'll see in the coming years uh, uh, what consequences flow from that. Uh, uh, and indeed, I, I totally agree that a lot of the consequences will be unintended consequences. That's why we have experiments. I will say I don't want to uh, endorse the notion that micro-targeting is necessarily bad. Again, that is the way that uh, a political persuasion has long operated, uh, that uh, a candidate who speaks exactly the same way to groups, uh, uh, to different uh, uh, audiences, is generally thought to be a fool. You talk to particular groups uh, uh, about things that matter to them, and you present your platform in a way that, hi that, that uh, uh, highlights how you're going to deal with their problems. That's always been understood to be smart and often perfectly honest politics. 
Now, of course, there's a danger uh, in these kinds of situations that you're going to be lying to some group, counting on people who spot the lie not being, who can spot the lie not being in the room, or sometimes not quite lying, but telling things to one group, spinning it one way to one group, and then spinning it another uh, to another group that if you look at the two together, you realize that uh, that's disingenuous or it's misleading. That's always a danger, as it is with a, with a lot of, uh, uh, of different, uh, um, uh, different kinds of speech. There's always a danger with speech that it could be used to lie or to mislead or what have you. Um, so I, I don't want to sharply condemn micro-targeting. I do think that more transparency in this kind of situation is a good idea. So if the uh, if um, uh, uh, platforms that allow micro-targeting also uh, um, uh, uh, archive all of those ads and the way that they're targeted so that people can uh, can monitor them, I think that would be good. Uh, but I, I think that uh, to the extent that Facebook, for example, continues to allow micro-targeting and Twitter doesn't, again, that too is a useful experiment uh, uh, that will allow us to get a sense of what, what works the best or what mix of things perhaps works the best. Thank you so much, Ellen Goodman and Eugene Volokh, for an illuminating and rich discussion about Twitter, Facebook, and political ads on the 100th anniversary of Justice Holmes's immortal dissent in the Abrams case. Ellen, Eugene, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much. It's fun. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. The homework of the week is to read Justice Holmes's Immortal Descent in Abrams Against United States. You can find the link on our episode webpage in the media library of the Interactive Constitution at constitutioncenter.org forward slash constitution. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to anyone who might enjoy, and who wouldn't, a weekly show of constitutional debate. And remember, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.